The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunting you destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back for a very special episode of Real Talk with Zuby. This month, as we all know, is Pride Month. So I thought, what better collaboration could we have than the British women's trans deadlift record holder alongside the USA's most esteemed and most successful LGBT children's author? And also the main star of the massive and amazing new documentary, What is a Woman? And of course, this is the one and only Matt Walsh. Matt, welcome to the show. Yeah, love the introduction. Thank you. <laughs> good, to, good to finally meet you in person. We've yeah, interacted likewise. online. I've been listening to your show. You probably don't know this, but since you were still doing it in your car. So it's been amazing seeing the rise. So first of all, I want to say congrats on the success. Really appreciate it. No Thanks doubt, for man. sticking through the car episodes. I know it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't always easy, so I appreciate that. All good, man. So one thing I really wanted to talk to you about to start with is because I know so much about your opinions and thoughts on so many different topics, but I realize I don't really know all that much about you as a person and your background and everything that led up to this stage. So can you just give us a little intro to who you are, especially for those who may not be familiar, but even those who are? The origin story. Yeah. Uh, you know, going all the way back, I was raised, uh, I, I was born in the Baltimore area of Maryland and uh, raised in a very conservative Catholic family. I got five brothers and sisters. One of my sisters is a, is a nun now. So that, oh, that's wow. like, that's how Catholic our family is. And um, but I went to public school, you know, for a big homeschool advocate now and I homeschool my own kids. But part of that is because I went to public school for, uh, you know, K through 12 and very liberal, even back then. You know, it's not as bad as it is now, but a liberal area. And so part of that was just learning as my parents were very open with us about, look, this is what you're going to encounter in public school. You got to be able to stand up for your values. If you hear something that's, that you know is wrong, 
you don't have to just sit and listen to it. You, need, you can speak up. And if you get in trouble for that at school, you won't be in trouble, in trouble at home for that. Um, so that was kind of how I was, was raised. And I think it's so, sort of prepared me a little bit for a lot of what I do now, um, which kind of started, I, I started a website about, uh, I guess it was almost 10 years ago now, just mm-hmm. a blog and um, kind of writing my thoughts on things without a lot of plan behind it and uh, kind of took off pretty pretty quickly. I ended up working with Glenn Beck at The Blaze for three or four years uh, before I came over here. They put me in a car for a couple of years. <laughs> That's awesome. Did you know that this is the world you were going to enter or did you have aspirations to do something else? I don't know. I, I, I always, I knew from a, from a young age, especially in school, I, I, part of it again goes back to just arguing with people, mm. um, feeling like uh, kind of behind enemy lines and enemy territory all the time. Um, but there was something, I felt like I had a certain aptitude there and uh, kind of something thrilling about it also, I felt. so. And, and I also knew that I have no other skills. <laughs> so it's either this or I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like it's, it's this or nothing. You know? I hear that. I hear so this that. or I'll, I'll actually be living in my <laughs> doing a podcast on it. When, what was it like growing up in, in Maryland at that time? So, I mean, I grew up in the Middle East, out in Saudi Arabia, so very different from the way a lot of people both here in the U.S. and also in my home country of the U.K. have grown up. But when people now hear the word liberal, I think that's actually one of the most bastardized terms that's really sort of become so far removed from what it used to mean. But what did that mean when you were growing up there? How have you seen those definitions of liberal and conservative change over the decades? Yeah, I think, uh, well, as far as conservative, I guess the, the problem for conservatism, as far as, I, as far as back as I can remember, is uh, a, a fundamental disagreement among conservatives about well, you know, the classic question, what exactly are you trying to conserve? Mm. And um, so that's, that's kind of always been the case. But for, for me, growing up in, in public school, it was, you know, it was, uh, I can remember a fair bit of left-wing indoctrination. I can remember, um, you know, even history classes and how they were. Back then, we, nobody was using the term critical race theory. It, it existed, but uh, the term hadn't made its way into public consciousness yet. So, but there was a lot of that kind of thing. I can remember even going back to elementary school. Um, as they were de-emphasizing, you know, um, the stories of heroism from American history and mm-hmm. more, let's talk about all the sins and all the things that we should be sad about and feel regret for, even though we didn't do them. Yeah. So I can remember all that, all that going back to, to when I was a kid. But e- even that is it's just, as bad as that was, it's nothing compared to what kids are going through now. Yeah. And especially when it comes to uh, all the gender stuff. I mean, that, that didn't, exist when I was in school at all. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, I think I was familiar with the term transgenderism. You you heard the term, but Mm -hmm. nobody that I ever encountered when I was a kid identified that way. You you know, I hadn't even heard that term until I want to say about eight or nine years ago. I remember people used to say transsexual. True, yeah. And transvestite. So a transvestite was someone who wanted to dress in opposite sex clothing. Transsexual was someone who'd actually done hormone therapy and had a sex change surgery. And now with this idea of transgenderism, it's just merely self-identification and you can do that other stuff maybe if you yeah. want to. So that actually, I think, in the past decade has really come to light. And then, of course, terms like transphobia, which 
didn't exist and was not a word until very recently and seems to be the primary device and argument used for advocates. That seems to be the, the one thing they always just come back to. Anyone who asks a question has any issue, any question is just, you're transphobic, you're transphobic, tra you're transphobic. And unfortunately, that shuts down, I think, about 80, 90 percent of people because, I mean, as I mentioned earlier in this, I mean, it's now been over three years since I posted a, a, a flippant tweet on Twitter saying, hey, I identified as a woman. I just broke the British women's deadlift record. That was back in February 2019 when fewer people were actually talking about this. And that blew up and, and went crazy. And it just amazes me that more than three years later, this is still a, a debate. And um, it makes me wonder what's going on in Western society, and particularly, it seems, English-speaking countries, the Anglosphere, that is causing this psychosis, for lack of a better term. And I think it's combined with an ep a pandemic of cowardice, honestly. And one thing I really like about what you do and respect is that you're, you're, you're courageous in your speech. You, you speak up, you say the things that other people are thinking, and you've got your principles and you stand by them, whether people agree, disagree, you don't cower and apologize for you know, absolutely everything. And that is, that's rare. Is that something that's always been within you or is that something that you've kind of learned and developed over time? Uh, I, I think I've always had, see, I don't take a lot of credit for it because I'm also, uh, I'm, I think I'm naturally antagonistic also and kind of a contrarian. So I, I have that, and so I, I, call, I call on some of that. I mean, the, the, there, there are many times in life when it doesn't really benefit you to be that way. But uh, for me, I, I, that's, that's kind of how I am. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not, that's why it's not, uh, it's, to be courageous is like you have to actually be, a courageous thing is when you do something mm -hmm. and you're, you're really afraid to do it. Mm -hmm. and, but you do it anyway. That's courage, yes. right? Um, but for me, with a lot of this stuff, I'm not, it's just, I'm not afraid. So yeah. you don't have to call and courage. And when I say that, it sounds like self-congratulatory. I'm not mm -hmm. afraid of anything. Um, I don't mean it in that way. I just mean, yeah, it, doesn't, I, I, it doesn't occur to me to worry about it. It's like when, mm. uh, a lot of people are very worried about being labeled, you know, and they don't, you, you call them, call someone racist, a homophobe, a transphobe. For a lot of people that, affects them deeply to yeah. be called that. They don't want to be perceived that way. And so you can manipulate them. Mm -hmm. um, and you're actually, it's, it's quite sinister because you're taking advantage of what is in that person a positive quality where they, you know, they don't want to be seen in a bad light and they, they're just decent, normal people. And, um, and then that's how they end up getting manipulated. But for me, I just, I just don't care yeah. at all <laughs> the labels that you put on me. If you say to me, oh, I think you're racist, I, doesn't, I don't care that you think that about me. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, because I know myself, I know what I am. I don't, I don't, it doesn't matter to me at all. Yeah. You. So there is, I think, almost to survive, and especially to do kind of what we do and to be in the you know, public eye and to be engaging these issues all the time, mm. there's almost this kind of like numbness you have to have to other people's opinions and feelings. And once again, that's something that in other spheres of life, I'm not sure that it's a positive thing all the time, <laughs> but... It does feel, it's almost a necessity yeah. these days because there's so much coming at you all the time. Mm. And, uh, you know, you could have a, a million people coming after you, calling you all kinds of names. And it's almost a survival mechanism. You have to yeah. get to a point where it's just like, I don't care what any yeah. of you people think. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree exactly with what you said because I get a lot of people who 
congratulate or thank me for my, my courage. And I have a similar response to you, which is that I, I think in one way it's a compliment. In another way, I feel sort of saddened that the bar for courage in society is, is so low that just saying what you believe to be true, or in some cases something that is objectively true, yeah. is now considered something that requires a unique and special amount of courage when I think really it should be the, the default. So why do you think that, why do you think so, so few people have that level of courage? Because we're not talking about, you know, fighting in, fighting in a war or running into a burning building and saving someone. We're, we're talking about, okay, you might get called mean names, but you're, you're not really putting yourself at some type of horrible physical risk. But it seems like now people's tolerance for, li- for risk, we saw this as well over the past two and a half years, yeah. that the tolerance for risk is, is, is zero. I think there's a lot that goes into it. Part of it is just living this comfortable Western life mm-hmm. um, where you, you, you can go about most of your life and on a daily basis and not really experience very much suffering and pain. And uh, you start to see that as the exception more than the rule with life. Whereas previous generations and even people now that live in other parts of the world, suffering, pain, deprivation, that's not an exception. That's just, that's just part of life. It's part of the deal. It's part of the bargain. Uh, we, we've been able to insulate ourselves from that. And so then it, it kind of makes you weak. And it also makes you feel like you're entitled to that kind of comfort all the time. And um, when anything comes along that threatens to, to take you out of that and make you a little bit uncomfortable, you, you recoil from it even more. Um, and so I think that's, that's part of it. People don't want, because we're so comfortable and weak, that even just disapproving comments, people posting frowny face emojis at you becomes... <laughs> It's a real trial mm. compared to what you experience on a daily basis. Then another part of it also is, it's, I think it's also a matter of belief. Mm-hmm. Um, and this really applies especially in the churches. So I get a question a lot about, well, um, with, with this film coming out, what is a woman? And uh, one question I get a lot is, well, you know, wh- why aren't the churches talking about this more? Why, why, are, why are you out here doing this? Why, isn't it, uh, why aren't church leaders out? addressing this issue of gender ideology and what it's doing to people, and which is a really good question because they should be. You know, I've been going to church every week for my whole life. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I've ever heard this issue addressed from the pulpit in a, in a really direct and substantial way. Um, and maybe you can excuse that for like the first 20 years of my life, but the last 10 to 15, there's no excuse to not talk about it. They don't. Mm. Why is that? Well, there, there's the cowardice also. But then also, I think it, it comes down to belief. I think a lot of the people leading these churches don't actually believe what we believe. They're pretending. They don't actually have this belief deep down within. Uh, and I think it goes beyond the church also. There are a lot of conservative, so-called conservative leaders who we look at them and say, why are they cowards? Why aren't they speaking out um, and defending our beliefs? Because they don't share the beliefs, actually. They don't, they don't, that's the dirty little secret. They don't actually believe a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Um, for me, I actually, I believe all the things that I'm saying. I wouldn't say it if I didn't believe it. So uh, everything springs kind of naturally from there. I mean, gender ideology. I, I say that it's uh, a clear and present danger to civilization. We are destroying a generation of kids. You know, my, my whole spiel on this. I actually believe all that stuff. I really believe deep down that all that is true. And if you believe that, you believe that something is that much of a danger to society and to your own kids, mm. then uh, what else are you going to do but 
speak yeah. up. And I mean, you, you wrote a book on this, really. You wrote, I mean, literally called Church of Cowards. Um, excellent book. I read, I read that all the way through. And that's something that also I found, I found disappointing. Um, and I also found it disappointing over the past two and a half years. I mean, I saw there were places where, you know, churches were shut down across the board and then yeah. they, they opened casinos and strip clubs and all this and that. And I, I was primarily in the UK during this time, but I was thinking, wait, how come all the, shouldn't the religious leaders be, not just church leaders, but all religious leaders. I mean, the, the way they just allowed bureaucrats to, to shut them down with, with, no, with no fight. I think it's one thing, something happening and you're attempting to resist it. And there's another thing when it's pressing against you and you just say, oh, okay, let's just, let's just go with yeah. that. Or, you know, or, or even you're the one calling for it. And that just, it, it, kind, it kind of hurt. <laughs> like, <laughs> in my heart, I was just like, man, this is, this is so disappointing yeah. with, you know, what's the point of all this if no one's going to stand for if no one's gonna stand for, for anything. And as someone who travels a lot, uh, so much of this stuff, oftentimes people say the world is going crazy and everyone's going nuts. And I mean, you, you somewhat explored this in your documentary, but I think when people say that, it's a very Western-centric perspective because so many of the, so many of the, the, the bad ideas and these, these mental pathogens that are, are spreading, it's primarily in the Western world. It's, it's the US, it's Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand, some parts of Western Europe, but actually the vast majority of people in the world, most of these billions of people have the exact same view as, uh, as we do, as the, the Maasai tribe that you spoke to in, in your documentary, What is a Woman? And that's actually the, that's actually the popular mainstream per perspective. I mean, what percentage of people in this world actually believe that a, a woman can have a penis or men can give birth and so on. These are, these are very, very fringe and minority views which somehow have created this appearance that they are the, the, most, the most commonly held one in the world. And I feel like that happens on a lot of issues. So it can seem like common sense is, is completely gone and everyone's wrapped up in this psychosis. But I don't think that's true. I do think most people are normal and most people know, sure, people have different opinions, but on certain, some things are very self-evident. There are a few things more self-evident than males and females, not just in the human species, but across the board. And it just seems like everyone is just playing this game all the time. Yeah, I think you're right. Part of the problem is, uh, you know, these days, especially large largely because of the media and the internet, you know, we're all just connected all the time and you're bombarded with all these messages. All It's just message overload all the time. Um, and then it, it creates this kind of amnesia where people have a very short memory. You know, we have the memories of, of fruit flies now. And um, that's why something will happen, you know, and it's like the biggest story in the world. Everyone's, you feel like it's, it changes everything. And then 30 minutes later, no one's talking about it anymore. Um, and all that means is that we just get, you, you're just like stuck in this eternal now of just like you're always wrapped up in each moment as it happens and you forget about what happened in the past and what's going to happen in the future. Um, and then, then it creates this kind of bubble where whatever is the reality for us right now in this exact moment, you think that, well, this is just the world. This is what it's always been. This is what it is everywhere. And you don't realize how insular it is mm. and how new a lot of this stuff is and temporary because 
uh, with the gender stuff in particular, yeah, you could go outside the Western bubble as we did in the film and discover that this stuff doesn't exist. Or if you had a time machine, you could go back, you know, a few years ago. Yeah, 10 years ago, really. And to, to anywhere in the world, and it didn't exist. I mean, it's, it's, so it's, it's unique to this place where we live, but also to this particular time. Mm. Um, and that's a, it's just something that people I don't think grapple with enough or, or even realize. Yeah. Why do you think that gender ideology specifically is, is so dangerous? <clears throat> because there's a lot of people out there, of course, including advocates and apologists who would say that, hey, why, why, does, why does this bother you? Let people live their lives, let people do what they want to do, believe what they want to believe, and so on. What specifically do you think is the, is the greatest threat about this idea? Yeah, I think a lot of, probably most opponents of gender ideology, when you ask that question, they would seem, to, they usually will say something about uh, the way that it affects kids, um, what it's doing to women, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and all of that is really important. And that's all, those are all, they, all that factors into why I care about this so much and why I think it's so important. But that's not the underlying reason why this is important. The underlying reason is that um, gender ideology is an assault on truth. Mm-hmm. And truth matters for its own sake. There's an inherent value to truth. Um, and when something threatens truth or not, you know, you can't really, th- truth is truth. You can't threaten it. You can't do anything about it. But when something threatens our, to, to, such, a, to such a degree, threatens our ability to perceive and understand truth on a, on a collective level, then that's enough reason to consider it a, a grave threat to mm-hmm. civilization. And, you know, I use the comparison all the time that, what if there was a movement uh, out there gaining steam to convince everyone that squares are circles? You know, um, it's, it's, there's a spectrum of squareness and circleness, and really they're the same in the end or whatever. Now, if, if that was, I, I don't walk around every day thinking about squares and circles. I don't care that much about geometry. But if, if this movement was, was happening, then I'd be out there fighting against it. I know squares are squares, circles are circles. Now I care because you're, this is a basic truth of reality that you are waging assault against. And I, I don't want to live in a world where we don't know the difference between squares and circles. And then, not to go too far with this analogy, but at first it becomes this, it's like it's this abstract matter of truth. Okay, but then if you actually abandon this truth and say, oh, it doesn't matter, squares are circles and circles are squares, then you start to see the real practical implications. Yes. Because how do you have... Uh, I mean, how do you build anything? How do you have architecture in a, in a world where no one understands geometry, right? Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, buildings are collapsing on people's heads. Um, so once you abandon truth, from there, there are all these enormously horrific consequences. Yeah. Going back to gender, that's what we see. First, it's the abandonment of truth. Consequence of that, women lose their identities, really. Their identities are appropriated. They lose their privacy. They lose their rights. Children are victimized. You know, but that all grows from this kind of root of abandoning truth. Yeah, absolutely. I think following on from that as well, something that I think is deeply concerning about it, two, two things actually. Uh, number one is that it sets a very dangerous precedent because there are, there, there's not really a more fundamental and self-evident and obvious truth as the fact that there are men and women, boys and girls, and that males and females are different and always have been in all across species. It's literally, it's literally how we all got here. Everyone birthed on this planet was birthed from a woman. 
And if you can convince millions or billions of people that that is not the case, then you can convince them of anything, yeah. right? There are, there are many, many things that would fall out from that. And another point of it, which is uh, you, you brought up the, the issue with kids and you talked about this in your documentary, but a point that I haven't seen many people make, and maybe because it's, it's very uncomfortable, but to me, it's a very obvious gateway to pedophilia. Because if people are advocating that a, a, an eight-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old, whatever, can consent mm -hmm. to a gender transition and something that will permanently alter them, perhaps render them infertile for the rest of, your, rest of their life, you're saying that you can make that decision at 12, then you are also crushing the argument against children not being able to consent to sexual activity. You don't get like let kids get tattoos. You don't let them drive. You don't let, I mean, I think tattoos are actually a great example because that's something that's, that's permanent. Um, I'd say a 12-year-old getting a tattoo is less, is less concerning than them going on hormone therapy or having their genitals removed or anything like that. So I think it's, it's, it's a very, and especially knowing, that, knowing the history of the type of people who initially pushed, pushed this type of gender ideology and some of their methods and things that they did, to me, it's like, this is a very clear, you're opening a Pandora's, very, very dangerous Pandora's box here. And I don't even know if the activists themselves realize that or the people advocating it, but it's a point that I don't think gets brought up much, but I think that's um, a real danger of it as well. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It's, and it's not, uh... It's not far-fetched. It's not a conspiracy theory. There's, a, as you said, there's a logical um, end to this because the whole argument against um, against pedophilia, against you know a relationship between a, an adult and a child. And the reason we say it's not a relationship, mm -hmm. that's impossible. It's rape. Yeah. Um, even if the child, you know, consents verbally, it's yeah. not really consent because. And why is that? Like what? These are, these are what we say, and, and we all pretend to agree anyway. Why is that? It's because a child can, no matter what they say, no matter what the child even feels, allegedly, the child cannot consent, cannot, um, mm -hmm. because, the, because of the, the lack of, of mental formation, um, lack of psychological and neurological development. I mean, there's, there's, real, there's real science behind this also, yeah. by the way. Um, the, um, the prefrontal cortex, which, which controls our uh, discernment, long-term decision-making, that's not fully developed until we're 25. So take an eight- or nine-year-old, um, how, how far along are they developed in that department? Mm -hmm. like, hardly at all. And that's why, that's why little kids just have no, they do stupid, impulsive things, and we have to constantly control them because they, they're not thinking about, they literally can't even conceive of, like, what's tomorrow going to be like. Mm -hmm. um, so... That's all. That's that's what all this is. This is built on is is on this idea that kids cannot make these kinds of decisions for themselves. And as you point out, if you take that away and you say, "Oh, well, actually, kids can," not only can they make these kinds of long-term decisions for themselves, but they can make what are essentially sexual decisions for themselves. So it's not just any decision. It's not. It's not just getting a tattoo. As you point out, that's that would be a lot better than doing a gender transition. I'd prefer that. Um, no, they're making sexual decisions, and, and, and it's based on this idea also that they are like in touch with their own sexuality. And uh, we get into in the, in the film, uh, you know, Alfred Kinsey and, and, and his uh, belief that children are sexual from birth. Mm -hmm. um, and he went to 
ex- extreme extents to, to, and horrific extents to prove this theory of his. Yeah. Um, so all of that is wrapped together with this gender ideology stuff. Uh, you're, you're sexualizing kids. You're claiming that they can make, that they are, they are able to consent to uh, profound life-altering decisions. And if that's the case, then it's not hard to see how all this other stuff gets ushered in. Yeah. Do you find it shocking and surprising that it's gotten to this level? Because I, I feel like throughout my entire life, one hard line that was always agreed, and this, this is across even different cultures and countries and societies, is that when it comes to children, there's a hard line there. And that, that's not... That's not something to, it, it blows my mind, this is, this is even a political conversation, that the things we're saying should even be deemed conservative or anything like that, because even people who consider themselves liberal or progressive, again, a, a decade plus ago, were, were not espousing these kind of, these kind of kooky ideas. And, and the, the notion that, you know, sure, people, people might have the view in a, in a free society, if you're an adult, whether or not... I agree with it, you agree with it, so on. People can generally do what they want. Whether or not they should, a whole different question. But we all had this agreement in unison that, look, children are a very special case and need to be protected, and you can't just apply the exact same rules as you do to adults. It, it seems like we're crossing a really, really dangerous line with that when it comes to children. And it also seems very confusing because... I honestly, to be to be real with you, I feel, I feel like in the West and in the USA, there's a very there's a very confused and mixed up notion when it comes to protecting children. In it seems very contradictory in some ways and in some types. It's like children and their lives don't 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 matter at all. Whether this is the glorification of abortion or this is what we're talking about right now, and then on another hand, two minutes later, it's like absolutely children's lives matter so much and they must be protected and there's recently been been a school shooting and obviously everyone's you know people are rallying around that and so on it just seems odd and contradictory and i don't in in some ways it feels like kids are simultaneously over and under vastly overprotected and vastly underprotected in our countries yeah well think about the parent who doesn't want their eight-year-old to go climb a tree because they might fall and scrape their knee or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't want even like a 13-year-old to go ride a bike down the street or something like that. And yet, they'll give a phone with internet access to their eight-year-old. You know, So um, very worried about certain kinds of threats, mm. but not others. And I think it, it, it does kind of make sense of the, on the macro level because it's, it's all part of the priorities just getting flipped on their heads. Um, and so you're going to, you know, we hear about helicopter parents, people that put their kids in bubbles and all this kind of stuff. And th- depending on, on what it is you're protecting your child from, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I, 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 I would like to keep my kids in a bubble of sorts mm. and be a helicopter parent uh, and, and very protective of them, but in certain ways. Like, I'm going to let my children go run around outside and they're going to fall down sometimes and get, and get a little bit injured and, you know, you're going to have to you break out the Neosporin and, and put a Band-Aid on. So that's the kind of thing you allow them to do. And that, th- those are the kinds of, that's even certain risks that you allow your kids to, 
make. You have to allow, you have to allow them to take risks in a controlled environment um, with your oversight. Because if you never do, then, um, then they're not going to learn how to take risks in a, in a healthy way. And then they're going to leave home. And, you know, that's when you end up with, you know, they're going to get behind the wheel of a car and be drag racing down the street or whatever. And, you know, that, those, they're going to end up taking those kinds of risks because you haven't, you haven't taught them how to take healthy risks. Um, so I will do that as a parent. Mm-hmm. But then there are other kinds of risks that I am not going to willingly take with my kids. And there are other things I'm not, other dangers I'm not going to willingly expose them to. And uh, those are the dangers that attack them, not by giving them skin knees, but attack them like at, at the soul level and mm-hmm. go after their minds and their, their perception of who they are. Um, those are the kinds of threats that a nine-year-old is not prepared to face, you know, which is why I don't get my, none of my kids have phones. And they're not, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, they're never going to have a phone with internet access while they're <laughs> living in my, in my house. I just, yeah. because there's never going to be a time where I'm going to say, you know, th- this will make your life better. Mm. You know, you're missing something from your life right now and uh, it's a phone. And so I'm going to give it to you. Uh, I'm not under the illusion that they're never going to have a phone, but I'm not going to be the one who pays for it and gives it to them. Yeah. Um, so that's my priority as a parent. And I look at other parents and, just society in general, and it just seems like things are kind of flipped upside down. Yeah. Do you think that this is an overcorrection? I often say that I think that our countries are going through an overcorrection, and this is something that is potentially temporary rather than a long-term trend, and we might look back at this time and go, ooh, like things got a little bit, little bit kooky over that decade. But, and I think one reason I feel that have that optimism is not because people don't need to fight. I think people absolutely do need to fight. But I think that lies can only go on for so long. And I think that something that is destructive and is, that is not actually working for people. I think it can, it can persist for a while, but I don't think it can, it can go on forever. So how do you feel about that? Are you, especially, especially as a parent, especially as a parent, I'm not a parent yet. Um, but how do you feel about the trajectory of where the USA and the wider world is going in this regard? Do you think this is a, a little overcorrection or do you think this could lead to something far more dangerous? What are your thoughts? Um, I don't, I don't see it correcting itself and I don't, I don't, I agree with some of what you're saying. I just don't, I'm not as optimistic about the timeline, I guess. I think that, um, eventually the pendulum will swing back in the other direction. And part of the reason is that, is that especially when it comes to the gender stuff, as I discovered making the film, it's so flimsy. It's built on such a house of cards that it, it cannot stand forever. It's just impossible. Mm. I mean, when you have this, this um, worldview, this ideology that falls apart under the slightest bit of scrutiny, like cannot even answer any questions for itself at all, then, then you have something that's very beatable. You know? mm-hmm. um, the only problem is it's a generational problem and it's an institutional problem because yeah. the left, even though it seems like this stuff just came along 10 years ago, it actually didn't, as we get into in the film. Mm-hmm. It's been around longer than that. And um, it, it exploded into the mainstream, it seems like 10, 8, eight 10 years ago, um, from the institutions. And the, the, the institutions were seeded with these ideas, uh, academia, media, Hollywood, corporate America, government, mm. and all that. 
Um, and then it funneled down into society from there. And now it's just claiming entire generations of kids. So what does that mean? It means that to reclaim the culture and to uh, get this madness out of the culture, we have to reclaim the institutions. And we also have to work at a generational level. Like, you know, I have to have kids and raise my own kids to be sane, decent people. Mm-hmm. And my kids have to have kids and do the same. I think it's like, so it's a longer process. I think it's a long-term process. But it's a fight we can win. It's just not going to be won soon, unfortunately. Yeah, I hear that. Of all the interviews you did in your What is a Woman documentary, which one, I mean, you had your poker face on throughout it talking to some really kooky and disingenuous people. Was there a particular interview or moment which shocked you the most? I think um, there were certainly moments in each in, in each interview that were really unsettling. Um, and especially we talked to Scott Nugent, who's a, a female transitioned to a male and is now speaking out about the horrors of this so-called gender affirmation surgery. Um, and she said a lot about just the details of what these surgeries actually entail and what happens after the fact that I didn't know and I found shocking. But from each interview, especially on the other side with the, you know, the, the proponents, the people that are pushing this stuff, what surprised me was just the fact that they couldn't answer any questions at all. I, I knew that they couldn't answer the question, what is a woman? That's the whole premise of the film, that they wouldn't be able to answer it. Um, if they could answer it, then the movie wouldn't exist, right? Mm-hmm. But what I didn't realize is that they can't answer any other question. Like, I had a lot of questions that I wanted to ask leading up to that question. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I thought at least the, the initial questions I asked would be pretty easy. The kind of softballs, they'd be able to handle that and we could just get, move along. What I found is that these interviews got very tense very quickly, much quicker than I thought, because the moment I asked even one real question, like an actual question that I wanted an answer to, and that was not an opportunity for them to just give a stump speech, the moment I did that, things started to fall apart yeah. because they, then they started to think, oh, wait a second, you know, um, this, is, this is not someone who necessarily shares all of my presuppositions. And then they get defensive and the, almost immediately they want to walk out of the interview, which is why we heard you know, most of our interviews either threatened to walk out or actually did walk out. Um, and not because of any gotcha questions. It's not like I went in there and I'm got some gotcha thing, and I'm, you know, just basic questions they can't answer. Yeah. Uh, the one that shocked me the most, I think maybe two moments, the one with the, the university professor, I think he, here in Tennessee, mm-hmm. uh, when he, you know, kept saying, you, you keep using the word truth, and that word truth is condescending and deeply, it's deeply transphobic. Rude. It's rude to say truth, yeah. It's rude. Yeah, that one... That that just I, I I almost wanted to like jump jump in the screen and like grab the guy because he was he was so he was so sneaky and so everything was just I was like this is not an honest this just not an honest person who's standing on any type of foundation at all and considering that's that's an educator um, and there are thousands Lord knows how many people like that across the country that's really concerning and then of course that um the the woman with the blue hair who, uh, when you asked about the Lupron drug, and she took exception to the word drug and then started to noticeably shift around and you could say, oh, okay, she's, you know, you, you, you've hit that sore point right there where she's going to have to admit vocally what she is actually 
doing and advocating for. And I think it says a lot when, number one, when people are not willing to answer honest questions, mm -hmm. that's a big red flag. And number two, when people are not willing to vocally say in clear, in clear words, not with euphemisms, but to, to say what they actually believe and stand for and are advocating. Because there's all these euphemisms people can, can use on various issues and make it sound fluffy and nice and so on. But when, when you really get down to it, it's like what you, are, what you are saying and what you are doing, you know it's indefensible and you know it's not right, which is why you're not willing to stand on it. And so for me, those two moments when I watched it really, really stuck out. Yeah, I think, uh, well, you said it before, that there, there are so many lies that they tell around this um, to protect it. And when you start telling lies, as everyone knows, like you start telling lies and then you got to tell another lie on top of that one and another one. Um, this is like every episode of Seinfeld with George Costanza. It's like, that's it, the humor. Is it, it's just one lie after another after another. Um, and it's a kind of a similar thing I noticed in, in these interviews with these people that um, the first question you ask, because they can't answer any question, and they know that, and, and because they know that at the, at the core of their ideology is just this hollowness, it's totally empty. And um, so there's this game of evasion, and you ask one question, and they kind of evade it, and they give a dishonest answer. Then you ask another question that's built on that question, and it's, it's like this pile of lies, and by after a while, they're backed into a corner that I didn't back them into. They backed themselves into a corner where they have to, where they have to say these just wild things. Um, like Forcier, the blue hair one, talking about um, the, the gender identity of chickens. Oh, yeah. And um, do chickens <laughs> cry? Can chickens commit suicide? It's like she didn't sit down wanting to say any of that. But, but this is just through questions. She put herself in a position where she couldn't even affirm that only female chickens lay eggs. She couldn't do it. Uh, so she had to make up some story about chickens and their gender identity and crying chickens. It's like, this is what ends up happening. She, she also wouldn't affirm that Santa Claus oh, yeah. um, doesn't exist. Like she, she, <laughs> she put herself in a position where she literally, as a doctor, could not even say Santa Claus doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, because if she had said that, then she would be admitting that first of all, there is a, there is a reality, a truth, and there are certain things people can say that aren't true. And she'd also be admitting that children are um, prone to believing, you know, wild things. And, they, and children don't have a real firm grasp on reality, which is why you can convince them that a fat man is flying through the air mm. at lightning speeds delivering presents, right? Um, and uh, if that's the case, that children don't have a firm grasp on reality, then how could they possibly make statements about their gender that we should take seriously? So she recognizes all these problems in her own worldview. And so she has to keep saying things to avoid the problems. And um, I think that ends up being a lot of the, that's a lot of the humor in the film, but also a lot of the, uh, what's disturbing and frustrating. Absolutely. And what's been the, how's the feedback been overall? Because it must be coming in from all angles over the, over the past week. Yeah, it's been, um, it's been uh, pretty overwhelming, honestly. It's, uh, we, we, you know, we knew we had something special with the film, certainly once we had finished it and um, finished filming everything and put it together. and But even before that, I think it was after we did the first interview, which was with um, the therapist, uh, is it the first interview in the film also, the therapist who was willing to affirm me as a man, as a woman, <laughs> because I like scented candles and I've seen Sex in the City. And um, 
after that, we kind of looked at each other and we left that interview and was like, well, this is, we got something here. Yeah. Um, and we knew also that this is the strategy is to, because we weren't quite sure either, like, how do we go into these interviews? What should we be doing? There was a part of me that uh, I wanted to go in there and like call these people to yeah. account and, and argue with them. But after that, we realized, no, this is just play it totally straight, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and so we knew we had that, but, I, but it was also a question to me of, of um, how the people respond to it and, and would we be able to, which was our goal, get this film outside of the conservative podcast audience bubble mm -hmm. where I spend most of my time. Um, can we create something that breaks through that and uh, connects with a, a larger audience, including an audience of people that don't all identify as political conservatives. Mm. And um, I was kind of skeptical about whether we'd be able to achieve that. Um, but so far, it's, it's, it's worked, I think. That's awesome, man. No, I, the documentary has been fantastic. Um, it, it was, I've watched it twice, and I've shared it with a lot of people. And honestly, like, I like to give props where props are due. And I don't think that very many people could have done it so well. I think your personality type and your ability to deliver that and honestly, to not laugh out loud at some stuff and also to not get visibly angry at some of, some of that stuff, like, it's, it's, not, it's not easy. It's not easy because I, I myself was watching and I'm, I'm, I've got a very cool head and I myself was like, man, I don't know if I would have been able to hold my composure when that person just said that thing. So congrats on the documentary. Um, before we, no doubt, before we wrap up, is there any, what, what's the main message that you'd want people, is there a particular message you want people to get from it or to think about? I think um, one thing we wanted people to take away from this is, uh, on kind of the negative end, mm -hmm. is, is just how bad this is and how pervasive it is and that it's not just some fringe thing on TikTok or whatever you want to tell yourself, um, that this is everywhere. And you have to confront it. It's, it's not an option to just hide somewhere and then hope it all just goes away and everyone wakes up one day sane again. Um, that's not going to happen unless we make it happen. Mm -hmm. So that's the one thing. And, and, and I've heard that from a lot of people, actually. It's like they told me, well, I didn't know how bad it was until I saw the film. So that's, that's good. It's not good that it's so bad, but it's good <laughs> that people are taking that away from it. Um, but then on the positive side, once you've realized how bad it is, the next thing I want people to realize from the film is, as we talked about, how beatable this ideology is mm -hmm. and how to beat it. And the way you beat it is uh, by, be, first of all, being willing to, to, to stand up and look it in the, in the eyes and um, ask it questions. You know, that's it. Just ask a little bit of skepticism is all that's needed. Mm. One question I do want to do ask, actually, before we wrap up, because someone asked me this actually recently at an event I spoke at. And um, it was actually a, a parent whose uh, child, I can't remember, son or daughter, is, has been indoctrinated into this, for lack of a better term. And I think it was like a nine or 10-year-old who wants to change their gender. Um, for any parents out there or just concerned adults in, in general, what would be, and she, oh, she was a, she was a, a Christian as well. Um, so I think she was, she was also quite shocked that her child was taken up by this because of how she's been raised. What, uh, what, what sort of, do you have any sort of answer or words for 
someone like that because I'm I'm rarely caught without a, a decent answer. But on that one, I I was I, I myself wasn't really sure what to say, especially not being a parent myself. I think um, the great struggle, even with even apart from the gender stuff in general for, for parents in the modern world is um, to hold, hold on to your kids. To, um, in fact, there was a book written, I believe called Hold On To Your Kids years ago, uh, kind of about this problem of how do you keep your kids connected to you and looking to you for guidance rather than looking to their peers and looking to all, you know, all their phones and everything else. Um, so especially when it comes to the gender thing, it's never been more important to, to, do, to do that, to hold on to your kids, um, maybe not physically, but, but keep them centered, okay? Give them, give them a place away from all the madness that envelops them everywhere. And um, what that means is, for one thing, if, if you can, don't send them to public school. I mean, that's the number one thing that parents can do, especially with this issue, to protect your kids is don't send them to public school. Uh, homeschool them. But if you can't do that, and I know not all parents can, or even if you can do that, one way or both cases, the next thing is to force them to live their lives with you in, in the present, with you in that physical environment, not getting lost in their phones. Because um, that's where so much of this stuff comes from. It sounds cliched, yeah. right, to blame it on the internet. But man, so much of this really just comes down to that. So much of it. Um, and the problem for a lot of kids is they go to school and they're in this peer environment with all the peer pressure. And then um, they leave school, but they don't really leave because they've got their phones and they can never escape it. They can never escape it. Uh, so give them an escape. Give them an oasis, which is your home and your family, where they can really be them, who they really are, you know, be them, their actual selves. Um, I think that's, that's the, the best thing we can do as parents. Amazing. Matt, thank you so much for the conversation. Massive respect and congrats on everything you're doing. And uh, you can check out the movie at whatisawoman.com. Highly recommend it. It's super insightful. It's funny. And it's also, frankly, quite terrifying. But definitely check it out. Thank you. Appreciate it. Nice one, Matt. Appreciate yep. it. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.